Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking upstream oil, its recent history and its challenging future. A decade ago, oil prices were above $100, and yet the oil industry itself was not making money. With the calamitous collapse in oil prices in 2014, the situation got even more challenging for the sector. Now, with prices rising again, it faces significant challenges. How to navigate energy transition, how to maintain capital discipline, and how to balance exploration with production in an increasingly geopolitically uncertain world. Our guest is Morton Kelstrup. Morton has had a 25-year career in the upstream oil and gas industry, predominantly with Maersk. He was the head of Maersk Oil's UK business and now is the chief commercial officer at Maersk Drilling. Morton has had a global career and holds an MBA from the University of Chicago. As always, if you enjoy the episode, please do leave us a positive review and I hope you enjoy the show. Morton, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, it's my pleasure. I really look forward to this. Fantastic. So uh, we're talking about essentially the upstream oil industry, a bit of a broad sweep of its recent history, the impacts of current ongoing you know, pandemics, <laughs> geopolitical events, and then what its future might hold in a world that is much more uncertain than it has historically been for the industry with the advent of energy transition and other technologies coming through. Can you just help set up for us the world of a upstream and oil producers over the last 20 years prior to COVID? Uh, yeah, I, I can at least try. I mean, uh, everyone has been in upstream oil will know that this is a very cyclical business. So we're kind of used to the ups and downs. But I, I think if you look at the last 10 years, at least, it's been extraordinary in, in many ways. 10, 15 years back, the oil price was uh, more or less at the same level as it is today. But the oil uh, companies at that time were really not making any money. So that decade kind of started what you could call a financial challenge trying to regain investor confidence following a, essentially what has been a long-standing crisis in earnings uh, was sort of how the, the decade started. But that challenge quickly got supplemented by an increasing call on the oil industry to also be environmentally sustainable, and particularly in the area of, of climate change, as you know. Essentially, if the industry wanted to retain its license to operate in the society at a, at a large, it had to move away from being I guess, predominantly seen as part of the problem to becoming part of the solution. Yeah. So if you go sort of five, 10 years back, a financial challenge really evolved into a more sort of a dilemma of both being financially robust, but also finding a way of, of dealing with climate change. So, so going, I mean, that's, it's kind of a, a really important part of this story, right? So we go back 15 years ago, you have high oil prices, can you just dig yeah. into that a little bit, and particularly around, I guess, capital discipline? Because you, you highlighted there it was high oil prices, but the financial results weren't there. Why was that? What was going on that was sort of, you know, challenging those those economics that would seemingly be, be quite positive at that point? Yeah, you would have thought so, right? And it's quite interesting that I think it was from the 
early 11 to mid 14, we, we really had oil prices above $100 a barrel. And yet, uh, despite uh, the top line, there wasn't really a bottom line for the oil companies to talk about. Firstly, if you look at the price levels, I think they were to a large extent driven by restrictions in supply at that time. There, there were supply inter interruption from conflicts in the Middle East and Africa, and, and also OPEC was more or less complying with their quotas at that time. Uh, and then you had the sanction of ERI on top of that. So, so limited supply. And then on the same time, you have generally a growing economy, but particularly you had uh, China and uh, to some extent India growing quite fast at that time and therefore also increasing supply dramatically. All of that gave that sort of fundamental support for the higher prices, but yet uh, no, no money made. And I think uh, there are two main reasons for, for that. One was cost inflation in general in the supply chain and the other, uh, what you may call industry inefficiencies. If you look at the supply chain first, it was clear with $100 oil, there was a sense of urgency to get the uh, oil out into the market. So projects were accelerated and there was a lot of pressure of getting operations up and running to a point that the supply chain had challenges following a suit with the oil companies, which essentially then changed the market into a seller's market. And just as an example, how bad it was at the time, you would end up on offshore rig, you would end up paying maybe up to six, $700,000 a day in the more extreme cases. And for comparison, maybe you can get that from $150,000, $200,000 a day uh, last year. Right? And if you didn't take into consideration mm. that drilling can be somewhere between 25, 50% of the capex of a development project, I mean, th th this is a huge difference in cost picture, right? And essentially, I think Goldman Sachs estimated around 2013, 14, the break even price for oil companies was close to $100. So not a lot of leeway to, to make any money. So you had that on one side, right? And then generally speaking, the there's a lot of potential for efficiency improvements in, in the upstream oil and gas. As, as you mentioned in the opening, I, I worked in the UK, and at that time, the average operational efficiency offshore was 60%, which meant essentially that three days a week production was shot in for many reasons, maintenance, breaks, and, and whatnot. But but three days a week, right? And and that's extremely costly if you are spending like $5 billion on a offshore project, right, that you're shutting in production three days a week. So all of that didn't help. And therefore, you saw that despite the spike in prices, that all the, the value was actually going downstream, very high mm -hmm. salaries. So employees took, took advantage of this. In Aberdeen, where I worked, it was clear that the high-end car dealers, they were making a fortune during that time, right? House prices, rentals, all of that sort of increase. So everyone was kind of having a great time in 2014, except the shareholders of the oil industry. Was it, was it recognized at that point that there was this lack of discipline, lack of focus on the bottom line? Were people sounding alarms or was it just the expectation that oil prices would continue to go up and in that longer transition upwards, people would start to recognize more efficiencies Essentially, the, the PEs were reflecting an expectation that future earnings would grow. Well, at least up to around 14, I think the expectation was it was a continue to grow and you could sort of, the oil price was kind of solved the matter. I think, of course, there will be people that have been concerned, but generally the industry was, was at least behaving like oil price would catch up. Uh, but then, of course, in the middle of 2000 and and 14, uh, the industry got the wake-up call when uh, when oil prices plummeted, essentially. 
So I, I think it will, mm. oil price mid 14, it was around $115. And in January 15, it was down to 35. It was like yeah. 70, 75% yeah. that just dropped dramatically. Uh, and that woke people up for sure. Before we get there, because that is sort of this, the first of a couple of pivotal moments in this narrative, can you just give us some sense of scale and also how much oil is produced onshore, what percentage is produced offshore, and then you've got that other sort of spectrum between national oil companies, you know, and OPEC and so forth, and then, you know, the, the private enterprises, the, the, the oil majors, et cetera, and the supply chain associated with those. Yeah. If you start with onshore versus offshore, uh, well, essentially, in round terms, we are producing around 100 million barrels a, a, a day, uh, which is what also the world more or less consume, give or take a few millions, right? And 70% of the oil production uh, is from onshore production. The, the rest is offshore. And most of the reserves are in the Middle Eastern region, especially if you take the conventional reserves that would be countries like Saudi Arabia and Iran and whatnot. They would in total also have around 60 to 70 percent of the conventional reserves in the world. How the daily production is split between countries uh, varies a little bit between how OPEC is complying with their own quotas and whatnot. But clearly the Middle East has, has the biggest combined portion. But in recent years you have seen First, Russia, and then uh, Adelaide, the U.S. Uh, climbing up to, to to fight for first place, which you will get if you produce around 10 million barrels a day, um, so around 10% of the global market, right? And then the U.S. and Russia and, and Saudi have sort of been in in the neighborhood. I think currently the mm. picking order is probably Saudi somewhat ahead of uh, U.S. and then uh, Russia third, right? Yeah. But but when you talk about onshore oil, I think it's also important to distinguish. I think there are at least three groups that you need to take into consideration. You have the Middle East, as mentioned, with this very low cost. A lot of it is onshore and very cheap barrels. The amount of resources and the capacity there is a little bit unclear because there's not full transparency, but this is clearly the epic center of uh, oil production. Right? Then you have uh, unconventionals outside of uh, the US with Venezuela and Canada as the big players, big reserves. A big production and they have always been important parts of the, the, the supply chain. It's hard work and probably expensive in all these places because it takes a lot of energy to get oil out of tar sands as in Canada, right? Uh, mm -hmm. but, but they're nevertheless important players. And then the, I think the third group you will then see, this is uh, the US uh, that has with shale made a major comeback. It used to be important. Conventional production declined and then shale has brought it back. And, and I think seen from the US, it's been, uh, as a country, it's been a huge success. And we can maybe dive into that a little bit later. I'm not so sure it's been a huge success for all the investors uh, so far, because there's a lot of no, money being sunk been, uh... into this, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, but surely for the-, the, the There's a question mark. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but surely for the US, it's been great with the uh, cheaper domestic supplies uh, uh, available here as well. And then and, and we'll get to that a little bit later, but, but the, uh, Drop in the oil price I just mentioned before is, is, is has very much to do with the with the increase in supply uh, from from the US. Right. So back to that twenty fourteen moment because shale obviously plays a big part in that. You had this dramatic decline to some extent, as you're alluding to, kind of unexpected, 
a few people we've had on the show that were participants in calling that decline. What were the major drivers behind that and, and how cataclysmic was that for the, the upstream industry? I think main drivers uh, this time was in uh, there was plenty of supply available and at the same time the economic growth also in China kind of slowed down so so uh, there was quite a, a, a gap between demand and supply at the time so so essentially yeah no support for prices and, it, and they dropped quite dramatically uh, as I said or 70 percent over six months period is is is, is harsh on on your income statement of course uh, so it, it was a massive wake-up call uh, in in many ways and i think the response from the upstream part was quite uh, dramatic and quite fast and it came in um, in many ways but sort of generally it was slash and burn across the board fields got shut down uh, supply chain contracts cancelled activities stopped capex budgets slashed and exploration virtually came to an end. So everything you could do to hoard cash and simply just stop what you're doing. So, so that was sort of the first immediate reaction. And then after that, I think the industry got uh, wiser. Then they started looking at how, what can we do to revamp the projects we have? What do we need to do differently in order to make it more competitive? And that meant uh, quite a lot of products, I think, was just shelved and, and given up. And you focused on the ones where you saw with low su supply chain prices and, and and maybe doing things a little bit less fanciful, uh, th then you can bring down uh, break-even prices dramatically. And, and I think it worked. I mean, at the end, you brought break-even prices down from $100 plus to maybe $50, $60 sort of on a general, general industry level. And you, you will see it, it, even today that uh, products will not go through the majors if they don't have a break-even price sort of in the 30 to $50 range, because essentially they're looking for robustness now towards the volatility of the oil price more than chasing the last barrel, which perhaps was the uh, agenda in 13, 14. Yeah, so you've now got that capital discipline and we'll, but we'll come on to it. There, at least until very recently, there's been a still that they've faced the discount on their on their share prices as a result of energy transition right you've seen you know actually extraordinary results from these organizations but still relatively speaking in the long run low prices i, I just want to sort of bit a vignette around that period because some of this was just normal cyclical nature of the oil industry right so you'd had this period of whilst the oil was at a hundred dollar plus there was significant investment in exploration in drilling rigs all of these things and and just as that uh, supply started to come on you, you then bring in the unconventional piece shale right so you had the confluence of those two elements coming together kind of overinvestment, typical normal super cycle type stuff and then shale comes in and the fallout was rigs stacked all over the world as you say right in that sort of 2010 period people were looking at pre-salt off Brazil and you know there was lots of technically challenging high cost projects people were looking at because it really was about you know, at the time it was peak oil right and and there was a push to find yeah, reserves definitely and then again you can say some of it is, is is business as normal in the oil business with this cyclical nature that we have and the ups and downs I, I just don't think we've seen it pushed to the limits to the extent that we saw in the period up to 14 and then seeing the the sort of a dramatic wake up call we saw there. So I, I think the the peak and trough were 
quite extreme and very close to each other, which kind of shook the industry. And then I think the financial markets probably helped also sobering up the upstream oil. Uh, essentially, I mean, you can't have three or four years with $100 oil and not really making a, a proper return to the investors. So the scrutiny we have faced since 14 has been quite severe. And I think you are still seeing that to a large extent. It would be interesting to see uh, whether it lasts if commodity prices stay where they are, right? But it's still, at least when we speak to to our customers, which include many of the majors, there's not a lot of wiggle room to in, in, uh, increase investments at this point in time. And that may yeah. be the difference is- uh, this time that the financial discipline stays and then you, you add the whole sustainability and the climate story on top of it, where there is a push to move money for some of these. And the strategy has changed accordingly also to, to push money from from upstream oil into uh, offshore wind or solar panels or, or where else they are going. Right? So there's, a, there's an alternative to investing in oil, which is either dividends or green energy today that is much stronger I think in the, in the most oil companies than it used to be. Yeah, and yeah, interestingly, it's oil and gas that are sort of leading that green energy charge in comparison to sort of incumbent utilities yeah. to some extent, right? You know, they're they're building a building a life raft rather than trying to defend the moat. But anyway, that's a different story. So you get to because you, I mean, it's a pretty bleak, barren living in Houston. My wife's obviously in the oil industry, pretty bleak picture for a number of years, and then. We went from, you know, COVID and negative oil, albeit a bit of a quirk of, of a trading system, to suddenly being right back up at $100 oil. And, you know, as we sit right now, there is an energy crisis in Europe, crises popping up all over the world. Sri Lanka, you know, for example, is, is now rationing fuel for government vehicles only. Part of that is an acute circumstance of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But when, let's try and control for all those factors. Were things turning around in 2019 before COVID struck? Kind of what was the picture right at the end of the decade? Uh, Yeah, I think it was turning around. I I think firstly, if you saw, if you start sort of in the 18 window, uh, 14 has kind of been turned around now. Contrary to 14, now the upstream was making money and the supply chain was in pretty poor uh, conditions. We saw uh, drilling contractors going into Chapter 11, uh, a lot of write-offs and whatnot. So, so essentially, supply chain has been pushed back because of lack of activity. And, and then you were seeing steadily increasing income in the upstream, although the oil price was still in the 60 70 $80. They were making good money. But we were sort of starting seeing a a slow recovery in activity levels, more products getting through both onshore and offshore. Uh, the deep water in the US conferences, you saw products coming up there. So so the recovery was slowly starting when COVID hit. But I think it's also fair to say that for me, COVID is, is first and foremost a human tragedy that with the seriousness of course, we should not underplay. But for the oil industry as such, it was more delay it was not a welcome delay, but it was more delay. The impact on operations were pretty small, uh, not a lot of interruptions. It was very difficult to navigate it, but frankly, mostly to people that we have uh, in the front line offshore and production facilities and drilling rigs and whatnot, and, and their stamina, we actually saw very few shutdowns or delays in production or anything. It actually operated quite well. So we, I think we owe these guys 
a big a big thank you for keeping the wheels running right now yeah. it delayed the recovery in prices the recovery in activities but as people sort of got the head around what this meant i think most started sort of okay it's not the end of the world we can start progressing our products anyway and we have seen activity levels building up quite quickly and if you look at the just taking the, the market i'm in with the drilling rigs as an indicator then you you would say oh in, in diva waters uh, it's getting harder and harder finding uh, vacant rigs right which is a reflection of activity levels going on there's a lot of uh, activity around uh, the globe both in exploration and development right now so, so we, we are coming back in, in the investment level albeit still restrained and still with projects which have uh, reasonably low uh, break-even prices in, in there so so it, the big question mark will be are we going back to the craziness of 2014 or is this going to be more restrained and, and for now i see the more restrained restrained approach uh, but but yeah you know it's the future we're talking about who knows so going back to that sort of the the economic difference between offshore and unconventional you know shale the reality of shale having covered it on on this episode and the the p private equity world's experience with it was that it was very high operating expense quickly yields whatever the right term is you know slowed down and actually it wasn't really generating any free cash flow you know it was certainly more like a real estate play in some senses and then on the flip side you've got on offshore it's very high i'm being very simplistic here and correct me if i'm wrong it's very high capex but once you found the oil it's just turning a couple of spigots and it's very low operating expenses both a is that correct <laughs> and b are you seeing a preference from the operators from the majors to they're going back to offshore because they're comfortable with it or you know are they also instilling the same capital discipline into conventional and they want access to both i know that's quite a big question yeah and and the answer will be it depends a little bit on the different companies but but just sort of a, from from the helicopter point of view i think it's worth just reminding oil companies will take a portfolio approach they will rarely go for pure play in one area or another there will be a few smaller companies to do that but but if you take the majors they are sort of saying we will go where our expertise is uh, and where it can be best used but that it's typically in, in more areas so you'll see if you take an exxon will be in the shale and they will also be in deep water for instance if you take to tell they will not go into shale they say they don't understand it they prefer conventional oil and lng and then renewables to a much larger extent than you'll see Exxon go. So they will take sort of a portfolio view on it, both on the technology side of this, but also on the different countries. So, so you will take a bit of US uh, country risk and a bit of Guyana country risk and a bit of, uh, at least you used to take a bit of Russian uh, country risk as well, right? Because you know things can move up and down and you don't want to be sort of a, a one-legged man in an ass-kicking contest, if you can call it that. <laughs> Uh, so, so you you need to spread your bet uh, essentially, right? Uh, and they will do that. So I think what you've seen that the restraint amongst the bigger oil companies, the major whatnot, on on capital spending has hit both offshore, whether you're in shallow or deeper water, for, for that matter, but also uh, on the shale side. And in shale, I think you've also seen that uh, cascaded down to sort of the mid-sized players there. Uh, you see at least a lot of them talk about uh, they will retain a discipline, they will pay out dividends and whatnot. So they will grow, but not reinvest all the money, which I think they used to do uh, 
before, right? So, so as you said, there was no uh, cash flow really going back to the investors. I think they realize now to keep attracting money, which is still difficult in shale. I think uh, to keep attracting money, you need you need to pay some of it back, and then you probably have smaller players with with less impact on the global market that would still go full monty into to the investment. But the, uh, as far as I can see, the discipline is is still there. But there will be, I think, some interesting conversations here in the fall where you typically look at the capital allocation for the next year. Right? There will be some interesting conversations. At least I remember from my days as a country manager, we tend to be a little bit more optimistic about uh, the projects we have than, than the corporate head offices. So we will normally ask for more money than, uh, than not, right? Uh, and I think most will, in light of the high oil prices, see the same. And whether they then start loosening that a little bit it's going to be interesting. My money is still on there. They won't, but 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 you never know. $100 oil has, has a, a lot of incentive in it. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe and the Americas and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. And I want to end up at kind of what signals can people look for, our audiences, certainly um, traders, to sort of get some sense of whether which direction the upstream industry is taking, because it really is a very complex picture right now. We're about to move on to that. Just one final question on, on sort of this segment. Back in 2010, whatever it might be, the supply chain was building up huge inventories, whether it's drilling rigs, whatever it might be, to, to capitalize on the high prices. Has all that inventory now been put back to work or has some of it just rusted away? Kind of, you know, where when you look at the supply chain piece of oil, is it now incredibly stretched or is there still capacity there? Well, I think a lot of it has rusted away, as you put it. Uh, we will call it scrapped. Uh, I don't know if that sounds better, but they, that has been taken out, particularly yeah. the older rigs. Uh, there's still a, a few that uh, that is stacked and, and waiting at a key site somewhere. It has to be borne in mind that these have been what you call coal stack. Essentially, you just switch them off and, and leave them be. And that is not a very good idea for, for moving equipment as you have on a drilling rig. So bringing them back is going to be very costly. It's like leaving your car in the garage for five years without doing something about it. You shouldn't expect it to start immediately uh, when you come back. It's, it's just when you talk about it, a drilling rig, it may be 50, 60, or $100 million to bring it back to market uh, once it's been there for a while. So there are still a few of those out there, whether they come back and anyone will sponsor that can be uh, can be debated. There were also a few new mm. builds around in yards, and most of those have either been taken up or has been found elsewhere. So there's not a lot of spare capacity to bring into the market, generally. Yeah. And another thing is, of course, those it's not one size fits all, right? You've got rigs that are developed for harsh environment, deep water, you know, shallow. There's There's also within that a segmentation that happens that you are not going to bring a certain rig to a certain, you know, to the Gulf, for example. So there's also even limitations there. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, so so uh, and, and we we are. It's, it's just a data point, but it's, it illustrates the uh, 
the difference between it if you if you take a rig out of the gulf and bring it into the uh, that is done designed for the u.s gulf and bring it into the north sea then one year in the north sea would uh, equivalent to 18 years in the gulf because of the more the hazard weather and the, the waves and the tension it would have on the hull so you need to you need to build a hull that is really robust in order to be in the north sea so you can't move them around just to, to illustrate your point a little Mm. Uh, so you have that so so it although it's a global market it's not a global market you will not move rig from norway to the u.s come or vice versa but it, yeah. in in the sort of deep water market that is essentially a global market and uh, and that's where you're seeing probably the, the tightest market right now there's still capacity out there but it's certainly less than what has been and, and there are some that reported in, in the u.s come it's now 100 percent full which is probably true if you take what is available, but you can move rigs from Brazil or Guiana or from West Africa into the Gulf as, as well if you need be. Right? But, but overall, the market is getting tighter. In the jack-up market, there is this more shallower water. It, it, there is still more supply than demand, but it's also getting tighter, but not to the same speed, if you think. And then you have regional, regional differences. Which I think it's quite interesting if you look at Saudi Arabia. I mean, they are picking up uh, jack-up rigs everywhere right now uh, which is interesting in the light of the, the oil price and also conversations around whether or not there's a uh, enough capacity in the in the middle east to increase production right mm. but a lot of rigs going down there right now so that may be a, mm. a point that if you're trading this you want to keep an eye on say what the heck are all these uh, rigs going to do down there yeah interesting you spend your time obviously running a business, but also talking to the leadership of producers, majors around the world, which is why we're so excited to have you on. It seems an incredibly challenging moment right now because you've got energy transition. How, in, in the big, broadest sense, how long is oil going to be valuable because it's majority of its uses as transportation and so on. Then you've got shareholder discount on any firm that is not got a clear ESG plan how long will that go on for and then you've got the immediate energy crisis and high oil prices for example Russia's earning a lot more income than it would typically do and in an energy crisis that very quickly can translate into a food crisis and the instability that results from that so and and you've kind of got this pressure from governments to increase production but on the same side you know dare I say it windfall taxes on profits and so forth um, so it's a really challenging environment to navigate can you I know I've said a lot there can you help thread that all together and kind of give us the scenarios that leadership in whether you're you know in your role in the supply chain at the leadership level or in the actual op operator level you know the, the the world that they're facing yeah, yeah, I can at least try. And then again, just repeating, I mean, from the beginning, it was, it, it, there is, and it's still around, right? There's a financial challenge to the industry, convincing the financial markets that this is actually worthwhile investing in, which is linked to everything you're saying, right? Then you have the the climate challenge, which is also raising the question mark. And then finally, and I think it has developed into a trilemma, and then you have the security of energy supply coming out of the this horrendous attack on Ukraine from Russia, right? So you have those three things that are big challenges to the industry. And I think it needs to find an answer in, in order to be able to reasonably argue that there's a role for the oil industry also in the future, just as, as I set out. So I think that the 
dilemma if, if you are a major oil company right now is, is, is do you stick with what you're good at or do you use this also an opportunity to maybe transition into to new markets and, and new opportunities and, and in that process also greening yourself because that is seen maybe as being a more uh, acceptable proposal to investors ac across the world. Right? And I, I think you are seeing players going a little bit in both directions. I think it was Patrick Briani that at the Zero Week that you had in Houston not long ago talked about either you stay with you with your molecules or you go into electrons. Players like Exxon and and Chevron are staying with the molecules, essentially uh, the hydrocarbons in the sense that they seem to be things that we are good at oil and gas, and we are good at what is associated with that uh, more closely. So we will we will look at something like carbon capture and because that is something we've been doing already. And that's a natural step out and in line with what we are doing well, which is handling uh, molecules. Whereas someone like Total and, and, and more of the European majors are saying, well, we, we are supplying energy. And then that includes electricity and maybe an increasing electrification of their, their portfolio. So they go into the electron worlds and start spinning out into uh, to windmills and solar panels and solar parks. and. and Whatnot, uh, and thereby also giving themselves perhaps in the public eye a greener image, uh, if you will. Right? So you see that sort of bifurcation between our companies, and then you have a whole range that will sort of place themselves on, the, on that scale. And then if you're an investor, you need to, to of course, uh, make up with yourself whether you believe one is, is, is better than, than the other. Mm. And I think that is too, too early to tell also. Uh, we can all have our preferences, but you, you're seeing that kind of split with the majors. And, and the way we see that is then uh, some of the ones that are going into electrons, there there's also maybe more competition and then maybe not always fair competition between oil and green. Uh, it's no longer just a matter of a, of return on investments. There are also other parameters that goes in that maybe confuse traditional oil people to have been used to something different. And, and there's a little bit where are they going? Are they going to invest? Are they going to stay? Are they going to leave in different countries and whatnot? Yeah, that affects the people. You know, we, we're definitely seeing that, right? It's sort of, as you say, it's not necessarily a level playing field when it comes to resources. And also, dare I say it, things like promotions as well, right? Yeah. You're seeing a, the traditional convent, you know, oil and gas hydrocarbon molecule people feeling somewhat discounted in favor of the new green technologies that the these organizations are investing in. And that's causing a lot of cultural tension within those organizations that is, is a tough one to address. The other thing to say there as well, and I'd love you to comment on this, is the oil industry has historically had extraordinary returns on investment, on equity, right? You know, you're talking like 30% type industry, whereas the renewable sector is actually more, it's, we're talking about technologies here, we're talking about hardware for the most part, and has a much lower rate of return in the nature of, of just how it's structured and power prices and so forth. Your product is not worth as much, and a solar panel is far less complex than an offshore oil rig, to say the blindingly obvious. So there's also that challenge as well, is that how are the oil majors going to make that income transition as well if they go down that green route? I agree, and uh, I, I don't, I will not pretend to have the answer on that one uh, because I'm also a little bit uh, curious about how that's going to happen. I, I think some of the ways that the money has been made 
at least initially in offshore wind and and uh, there's a Danish company that's called Ørsted, which I think now is the biggest player and that has been very good at it is that you go in essentially and take the initial risk of, of getting the power purchase agreements in place and getting the the offshore windmills built and then you uh, farm down and selling out to pension funds and whatnot at a, a much lower discount factor and thereby you, you realize money that way which is sort of an indirect way of making money i think that would work for a while but in the longer term there has to be some sort of price reward uh, whether it's through a tax on co2 emissions or something else that will uh, induce investments into to windmills for instance right in order to to, to provide adequate returns yeah and, and you can argue at least from an economist point of view then uh, co2 tax is the most obvious way to to sort of live in the playing field a little bit so so we we spend the money there where the least emissions are or at least there's an incentive to do something about the emissions and that may help a little bit but uh, right now it's a little bit hard to see that the financial returns at least justify uh, the investments and funnily enough i mean uh, if you look at the guys investing in renewable energy now and someone of an industry group it is oil companies that are the the biggest investor followed by utilities into green right uh, which, which is to some extent interesting yeah yeah as you say there's also this argument, which we've discussed on this show again, if you were to account for carbon in a price mechanism, whether that's a tax or a credit, whatever it might be, that would unlock some of the uncertainty around investors supporting increasing oil production in a time of energy crisis. And also, yeah, as you say, level the playing field by capturing that external externality. Okay, so so as you look forward, it's sort of somewhat crystal ball time, and we're privileged to have you on to to ask these questions. What, when you look forward, what sort of factors do you think indicate continued rising prices, and what signals should we all be looking for? Well, first, I mean, if you look look at the in the wake of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I, I think. Generally, there was a renewed and maybe in some places perhaps somewhat reluctant acceptance that oil and gas is going to stay around for quite a long time yet. And it, and it is required to have an orderly transition and to have affordable energy and having it available when you need it, right? I would just be cautious from an oil and gas industry point of view and in not interpreting this as a, a free launch to continue as is. And the reason I'm saying that is that I, I think the pressure on the industry will remain high to do something about our emissions. And this is relevant in the sense that that, that makes oil and gas more costly to deliver to the market. And therefore, it may also reduce the availability of supply, whether we like it or not. Essentially, it's just more expensive to deliver emission-free oil and gas than, than not. So, so I think that in itself will, will probably support supply constraints for, for quite a while. I know there's a lot of political pressure also, at least publicly, that we need to reduce uh, gas prices and whatnot. But essentially, the fundamentals will still be, if we need to invest at the same time in emission mitigation, it's going to be more costly. So, so that would, to some extent, restrict supply. Mm. On the other hand, if you can say there is a more general acceptance that oil and gas is part of the ecosystem for a long time yet, then 
you could also argue that financing would have to adjust somewhat in this way. And, and, and this is more becoming more acceptable again to invest in oil and gas and thereby lower the financial cost, right? So you can say that maybe they will sort of offset each other. But I'm also aware you can very, if, if, if you want to, you can very easily argue the complete opposite here. So, so at the end of the day, you will just end up, I think the future is just as uncertain as it's always been in this market. It's impossible to, in, to predict where we're going. At least the industry has not been very good at it. Uh, no. And, I, and I've been on the wrong side of expectations so many times that uh, I'm probably the last one you should listen to. Yeah, never, never trust someone who can predict the price of oil. But I mean, it is fair to say, though, that normally by this stage in a in in the price trajectory you would see significant inflows of investment into the oil industry and even anecdotally i can see that we're not seeing that in the number of banks here in houston that have closed down their upstream offering european banks that are no longer offering you know to investing in reserve based lending and all these things that would have been buzzing right now and as you said yourself most of these oil majors a good proportion of them are investing in green technology, which is great and fantastic, but that's also diluting their investment that's going into what they would have normally done, which is exploration, production, etc. So there is an investment story there that suggests that we could th see things get really tight over the next couple of years. I, I agree. Uh, I just wonder whether the restraint on investment is coming mostly from the banks or mostly internally from from uh, the oil companies and the sort of more immediate uh, investors. If you take into consideration that, I mean, from expiration to you actually have first production, it typically takes about 10 years, right? Then what we're seeing today and we're seeing in the next few years is also the almost complete stop for expiration for new oil in the sort of 2014, 15, 16 window. That oil we didn't find at that point in time is not going to come on stream now, so that would help. So even if there is a huge influx of money today, it's not going to dramatically change the uh, supply tomorrow. It takes time. Right? The exemption may be the Middle East where they can do infill wells and the more off offshore and onshore maybe and bring back more production, but it takes time to bring new fields on stream. So, so this constraint we're seeing now is maybe more imposed about what the oil companies have done to themselves over the last few years than, than the change in investment appetite from uh, from banks and whatnot. Will that change? The, the more climate plays into the, the picture and investment picture, yeah, it, it may be. Again, uh, Patrick Piana said many interesting things at this year weekend. Another thing he said was also that uh, he was not concerned about financing. They would always find money for the interesting product projects that had good returns. And of course, it's easier for to tell maybe than it's for a small time player somewhere. But but if the returns are there, which the higher commodity price should suggest, then you should also think there will be money there. Mm. I don't think we are. We, oil is not a so-called sin share yet, right? But even sin shares like uh, guns and gambling and whatnot find money. So you uh, may not always like the price, but uh, I, I don't think that's the main constraint. I think actually this is the confusion on where you uh, where you put your money uh, in, in the future and whether you want to go more into oil and whether you want to transition them back to the money back to uh, the shareholders or or to to new business areas in in the green territory. Yeah, because it's interesting, isn't it? Because you've got I hadn't quite appreciated that yet. Yeah, that if they're talking like a ten year span from 
exploration through to production that also coincides with most of the developed world's goals in post-2030 to be heavily reliant on the electron at that point rather than the molecule. Yeah. So it's a, a real pivot point right now. If, if people today are saying we can't invest in new exploration because the expectation is this, this you know, oil is going to be worth much less in, in 10 years, 15 years, the economics just aren't there. If the energy transition doesn't occur or is delayed, you could have a really challenging time in the, the 2030s. And as we say, commodity markets and whatever it is, whether it was whales or whatever, they don't, the price doesn't gradually reduce to zero. It typically goes up and becomes very volatile as it degrades. Yeah, and, and, and again, we're talking about the future, so you have to be a little careful, but you, you could uh, sort of on dark days, you, you, you if you look at the, the market where it is now and then, and I'm old enough to have experienced the 1970s, uh, you sort of had the same situation at the end of 17. There was a, a lot of concerns about energy supply. There were wars going on, the Cold War. You had the hostage situation in Iran, uh, invasion in Afghanistan, and, and there was no end to sort of the misery which was kind of a, the president in the US at the time, President Carter, sort of expressed very clearly in a, a speech, which I think is referred to as the Malice speech in 1979. There was no end to misery. And, and yet, if you look at it, then from 1980 and onwards, I mean, we have had almost 40 years of uninterrupted growth and, and improvements on the globe. Right? There have been a few setbacks, but, but if you look at the overall economy, I think it's grown by three or four percent on average every year, right? Mm. So, so we are much better off, and that happened quite quickly in the 80s, that that turnaround. We are much better off than we were 40 years ago. I, I think the income per capita is like five times higher or something. And if, if we just take a more modest economic growth of 2.5%, then every 20, 30 years, you will double the world income again. So in 2050, they will be twice as rich as we are today to deal with problems also, right? So humankind also have a tendency to find solutions. And, and, and I, uh, so on the darker days, I would rather think of, a, of a, that we will do that. So right now it looks troublesome, uh, wars, we, with climate change, and we, 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 we lack supply of commodities. But then we've done that before, and, and I think we can fix it. And, and there are many ways that we can mitigate the emissions from the oil and gas industry in order to make that also a sustainable player for the next many years, and I think that would help. It's probably better that we we put our bet on natural gas than on coal, which is also readily available. We have nuclear, which I think will come back. So I think we can solve the energy crisis uh, as we have it now, probably faster than it looks right now. But yeah. a lot of work has to be done for sure. Uh, but I, I remain optimistic. And another way maybe of, of illustrating it, if you take, which will help a lot, a hundred dollar tax on a per ton of a CO2 emission, right? That's about 25 cents a liter of diesel or gasoline. That's 10, 15% of the current retail prices in, in, in Europe. Europe at least can afford that. And I think the US can as well. And a hundred dollar tax will kickstart a lot of things if that is there, right? So we have it in our hands really to, to, to mitigate both the financial uh, you can say challenge to the industry, but also the emissions, and that, that will bring more supply out. We just need to 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 act, uh, I guess. Yeah. Well, let's leave it on that optimistic note. I've really appreciated your time. It's been a a really interesting discussion, and lots of, lots in there to think about. And you know, I think it points to 
as we said, right, if you're a leader of these organizations, which you are, you face one of the most complex environments that we've ever faced. And uh, the stakes are pretty high as well. Yeah, and then just uh, just to close, I mean, if if you're familiar with European football, you will be familiar with an expression called uh, squeaky bum time, uh, which is, is essentially uh, it's a Manchester United manager, so Alex Ferguson, that came up with that. But that's essentially that sort of a ending point of a game where where you need to decide whether you're going to win or lose this game. Yeah, uh, and I, I think for for oil and gas, we are in a squeaky bum kind of situation. But I think we can also win it. Excellent. Well, I will leave leave listeners with that thought. Thank you, Morton. Um, I've really enjoyed it, and you know, hopefully, we can have you on again, you know, next year, and 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 see see what decisions are starting to be made, and see how wrong I was. Uh, but uh, thank you. It was a pleasure as well, Paul. I really enjoyed this. So, thank you very much, and uh, have a great day. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.